invite you to open your Bible with me to Psalm 63, Psalm 63. We've been uh, making our way slowly through the Psalms, uh, usually during the summertime, uh, but we lost last summer, and so we're just going to make them up a bit as we go. Psalm 63 is where we are, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 63, let's give our attention to God's Word. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you so much for these words penned by our brother, the prophet David. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, these words would become life to us as you speak them by your Spirit tonight. And Lord, what we do not know, teach us. Uh, what we do not have, give to us. And what we are not, Lord, make us by the power of your Word and the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 63 is um, one of the most uh, lovely, beautiful, poetic, emotional uh, Psalms, and I think in all the Psalter, it's it's long been one of my favorites. Uh, it, it captures the experience of authentic worship. Uh, there's a lot uh, that goes on in the world today that's called worship, and um, I'm not going to go into uh, s- sort of uh, grading them. But the nice thing about Psalm 63 is it gives us a true north, of what worship really is, what what biblical. Uh, worship looks like. Uh, when we began our study in the Psalms, we said that, that other portions of Scripture are uniquely designed to train our thoughts and will, uh, but the Psalms have a unique function. Of course, they affect, uh, they, they deal with our mind and will, but, but they train our emotions. They teach us um, what, a, what it is like to walk with God. What, uh, and here in Psalm 63, uh, what is an emotionally appropriate response to God? It shows us what the emotion of worship looks and feels like, and that, that's an important lesson. Uh, I, I grew up in a, a wonderful, um, solid, biblical, reformed church, and I, was, I remember being taught from my youngest age that I can remember about the dangers uh, that uh, the church faces, dangers like worldliness, that, that worldliness 
undermines the witness of the church as we, as we stop being salt and light. Uh, we, we talked about the dangers of false teachers and how false teachers devastate the witness of the church as the, um, the doctrines, particularly of the gospel, get undermined or washed away and so the church is, uh, loses its message uh, to the world. But there was another danger that we didn't talk about as much, and it's unfortunate because uh, it is as dangerous as false teaching and worldliness. Uh, as many uh, people have been led astray, as, as many churches have been killed by this danger as by false teaching or by worldliness. And the danger I'm talking about is the danger of religious formalism. Religious formalism. Uh, religious formalism is um, going through the motions participating in the forms of Christianity, but without any engagement of the heart. Um, the, <laughs> in the Old Testament, you remember that this was one of the constant problems. Uh, one of the things that the prophets thundered against is that the God's people participated in the forms. Uh, they, they, they went to the temple and they uh, participate in the sacrifices and in the ceremonies and all of that very good, all of that commanded by God. But their heart wasn't in it and, and so their, their worship was, um, it was rote. It was a routine. It was, they, they thought it was a duty they were doing for God, something that would make God happy. <clears throat> but God was not happy with their worship. He was incensed with their worship. Uh, remember uh, Isaiah chapter 1, if you want a um, clear example of that, where, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, just asks, who asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. I've had it with your sacrifices. Because it was simply a formal routine. A formalism in the church today is just as abhorrent to God. And, it, and it's a very subtle thing. It, it just looks like a comfortable reliance on external forms of worship and piety while overlooking the engagement of the heart. There's a subtle assumption that goes along with religious formalism that, you know, God is pleased if we just show up. And God is pleased if we, if we do worship, and particularly if we do worship the right way. So if we sing the right songs and, and we have um, sufficient, sufficiently... Orthodox sermons, and we, and we just punch out right, the liturgy, the right kind of liturgy, that God will be pleased with that. I, I just remember that being communicated um, very intentionally and, and, and unintentionally as I was growing up, that we don't come to worship in order to get from God, we come to give to God. Well, the idea was that if we just go through the motions, as we, as we do the liturgy, that, that God will be pleased. Well, he's not pleased. Um, you see, uh, God is seeking worshipers, not performers. He's, um, he's seeking men and women and boys and girls who actually desire Him and, and who delight in Him and who long for Him and trust in Him and, and, and really worship Him from their heart. And worship that does not come from the heart, Jesus said, is vain worship. Matthew 11, 15, verse 8. They, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. There's no value in it. There's no benefit in it, either to God or to the people. It's empty. Well, Psalm 63 exposes the, the vanity of formal religion by presenting us with a picture of true, heartfelt worship. 
This is a, a love song towards God. God is referenced either by name or by pronoun 16 times in the first eight verses. It's saturated with God. It, it's as if David is in the very presence of God and he's enthralled there. Here's a man worshiping in spirit and in truth. The title tells us that David wrote this while he was in the wilderness of Judah. There are two times that we know where David was in the wilderness of Judah. Um, The first time was when he was hiding from Saul, when King Saul was trying to kill him. The second time was when he was hiding from his own son Absalom, who was also trying to kill him. Uh, The commentators disagree over which of these uh, instances. I think Calvin leans towards um, this being related to the experience with Saul. I think this will be the first time I say this from the pulpit. I think Calvin's wrong. I think uh, actually uh, verse 11 I think is a sign the king will rejoice in God. David is speaking of himself. David is king. I think this is uh, when David is running from Absalom who's seeking to overthrow his throne. So that means that this psalm then is written in the middle of what surely must be the most excruciating experience of David's life. The persecution of Saul was deeply trying, deeply frustrating, confusing. God had said that David was going to be king, and now David's running for his life. It was a deeply confusing time. But Absalom's rebellion has to be completely eviscerating, devastating, heartbreaking. Absalom is his son, his third son, but it seems that Absalom was uh, most likely his favorite son. And there's reasons. Absalom was a, was a very, very handsome man, a very charismatic, gifted young man. David took pride in Absalom. But Absalom has been out spreading lies in, in the community. Absalom would, would sit at the gate and he would talk to the people and, and, and sort of join, encourage them to critique his father's reign. Absalom has been at work to undermine David's rule. And how devastating it has to be for David as a father now to have his own son trying to take his life. And David knows that this has come about because of his own sin with Bathsheba. This is God's discipline on David. And so the wilderness of Judah is not just a dry, arid place on the map. It's, it is a, it's a weary land where there's no water for the soul. It's a place where David is parched. And in that wilderness, he turns to his God... And like Job of old, falls down and worships. I'm going to, uh, the outline tonight is borrowed right out of Derek Kidner's commentary. And uh, I think he's he's captured the psalm uh, perfectly. Uh, First point being God of my desire. And secondly, God of my delight. And thirdly, God of my defense. First then, God of my desire. The psalm begins, David begins with a foundational fact. Oh God. You are my God. That is a, it's an incredible thing to be able to say. And we need to be clear about what David is saying. He's, he's not expressing a personal choice here. He's not saying, God, I've, I've made a, a choice for you. I've chosen you above all the other gods. I've decided to make you my God. It's not what he's doing. David is reflecting the covenant reality that God has made himself David's God. He's reflecting and celebrating the astounding fact that God has made a covenantal relationship with Israel and with David specifically. And and the, the core of the covenant promise is, 
I will be a God to thee. I will be a God to you. You find that in uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, God is speaking to Abraham. And he says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, and I will be their God. I will be their God. In Exodus 29, verse 45, he says to Moses, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. This is the glory of what it means to be God's people. This is the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. If you remember Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So when David says, O God, you are my God, it's the foundational fact of his life, and it is, it's the essence of the covenant promise. The blessings that God gives are wonderful, but the essential uh, blessing of the covenant is specifically this, that God will be our God, that God will take uh, our care as his concern, that God will make our, priori- our salvation his priority. That God will do, uh, exercise all of his sovereign power and mercy and grace to be a God to us, to rescue us, to save us, to bring us into his presence. And so as David writes in the middle of all that's lost and all that he's suffering and, and in the middle of this discipline of God, he, he yearns for God. He's drawn to God. There's nothing he desires more than to commune and to know God. Earnestly, I seek you. The word earnestly uh, can also be translated as early. Some of the translations, I think the King James has that. It, the word is, has relationship to the dawn. The idea is that seeking God is the very first thing on David's list of things to do today. It takes priority of place in his priorities. He, he's hungry for God, and, and it's an all-consuming appetite. My soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, if you've ever been truly thirsty, I mean thirsty so that your mouth is dry and your tongue is swollen, your body is dehydrated, you know that all you can think about is water. And you, you long for it like you've never longed for anything before. Well, well David is thirsty like that for God. For God. Not for God's gifts, but God himself. And God alone. He wants, he wants God. He's desperate for God. He wants the water of God's presence. And, and his soul feels this need like the body needs to have water. You, you, you find this, this yearning expressed so well in Psalm 42 verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants For thee, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I hope you know that sort of intense, focused hunger. When you you realize that there's nothing else in this world that's going to satisfy you ever. And that if you're going to live, I mean actually live, you need God. 
And to exist apart from God is just death. Just another word for death. And no matter what the world could give you, no matter how much you might enjoy yourself with, with fleeting things, it's all death. Unless you have this, unless you have God, the living God. And that desire, that longing, that focused, intentional seeking for God is at the heart of true worship. Eric Alexander, in his sermon on this, said this. I think it's, it's worth memorizing. He just says, It is a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty or repeat a habit rather than to satisfy an appetite. Let me just read it again. It is a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty or repeat a habit rather than to satisfy an appetite. You see, one of the, one of the great signs of spiritual trouble in the church is when the church just is rolling along sort of by its own momentum, but, but people have lost their appetite for God. Their, their passions are aroused by other things, by politics and sports and making a living and uh, relationships and technologies. Those are the things that people think about, that, that they talk about, that they desire. And they come to worship because it is a habit. They come to worship to perform a duty, but they are not coming to satisfy their appetite for God. That's a, that's a deep problem. Well, why is David so passionate for God? Where did he learn this earnest longing? Where did he, where did he get this from? Well, it comes from his prior experiences of God and worship, as you see in verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David remembers times of past worship where in the ceremonies and the sacrifices and in the words of the scriptures, David had looked upon God. He had seen God there, God's power and glory. And so uh, when David uh, remembered God rescuing Israel out of Egypt, he saw God. God revealed himself to David in that, in that act of redemption. In, in public worship, in the sacrifices and ceremonies and scriptures, God had filled the horizon of, of David's life and, and had revealed himself to David to be glorious in his righteousness, in his justice. You want a lesson in justice and the righteousness of God? Take a little lamb and bring its head up as maybe you're holding him between your knees. Take its head up and then take a knife and start from one end of the neck and go all the way to the other until the blood pours out. And you do that because you know that you've sinned against God. And sin requires atonement. Sin requires the shedding of blood. God had revealed His righteousness to David. But God had also revealed His grace. That God was willing on the, on the, the account of shed blood to forgive David's sin. Even his horrific sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. 
He had seen the glory of God, how, how gracious and good God is, how faithful and mighty and merciful God is. He'd seen it all in worship, and it was, it was beautiful to see. Is that how you experience worship? Is that how we experience worship? Do we, do we behold God? Because that's what it's for. That's what it's for. We don't, we don't come together to perform a liturgy together. We come together so that God might reveal Himself to us, so that we might receive a revelation. And so in worship, we believe, we believe that, that God is with us, and God greets us in this salutation. It's not just a tradition. God calls us to worship. Jesus really says to you tonight, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Those are, those are Christ's words to you. God communicates to us in His Word. And we respond to Him in the confessions and the prayers and the praises. And the whole point of all of this is that we might see the glory and the power of God. That we might, we might have a sense of who God actually is as He reveals Himself and what He is like. And it would draw out of us a heart of worship. That he's worthy of our praise and our trust, our time. You see, th th this is why we make the gospel such a central, essential part of every worship service. Because the gospel is where the power and the glory of God are revealed in, in its most true, fullest sense. In Romans chapter 1, 17, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If we're going to see God in truth, we must see God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel has to be front and center. It's there where we see most perfectly the wisdom and the justice as Christ Himself is slain for our sin. We see the mercy as, as Christ is slain for us. We see the power of God as God is able to raise us from the dead and to give us everlasting life and to give us an inheritance with Jesus, in Jesus, a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever in the presence of God. This is where we learn those things. This is where we see God Revealing himself to us. And so you, you see, worship that's worthy of the name is, is worship that sees past the forms, past the liturgy. We, we, we follow the liturgy so that we're all moving together. But, but worship that it's, it's worthy of the name sees with the eyes of faith and perceives the reality of God. The glory of God. The power and the mercy and the grace and justice of God in Jesus Christ. And that, when that takes place, if the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, that will inflame your heart and that will grip your mind as you experience God. As you experience the reality of God in truth, in His glory and His saving power. And it, it is that experiential grasp of God, that experiential perception and knowledge of God. That's what moves David to sing in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
And I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You see, we, we ask too much of ourselves to, um, to praise God and to lift up our hands for as long as we live without seeing God. But, but when we've seen God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and we've tasted the goodness of God, and we've experienced His steadfast love, that inspires worship. Um, it's a wonderful thing for David to say, uh, your love is better than life. I mean, what do people treasure above everything in the whole world? They treasure their life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And yet David says, I found something better. The steadfast love of God is, is better even than life. Derek Kidner in his commentary says, this is a true estimate vouched for by a whole army of martyrs. Why would people be willing to die for Christ's sake? It can't be pride. Not, not when the gun is in your face. I was just reading an, uh, an account recently of during the um, Soviets uh, when they were trying to wipe out the church. Uh, they gathered 21 priests and marched them through the night into the middle of the woods. And then um, the, the, the captain who led them out put a gun to the first man's head and says, do you believe in Christ? And the man said, yes, and he shot him. And he went to the next man and said, do you believe in Christ? And did the same. And all the way down the line, 21 men, and every one of them, seeing exactly what was going to happen, said yes. Now, how do you, that's not just heroism. You, you need to know that the steadfast love of God is better than life. It's better than life. God has to be your delight, and that's the second point here, God my delight, beginning in verse 5. Notice the, the way that David enjoys God. My, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Remember David began the song by speaking how parched his soul was for God, and here he confidently affirms that knowing God and having God and, and experiencing the reality of God will satisfy that thirst. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And congregation, that, that expectancy is also critical to God-honoring worship. Expecting satisfaction in God is an is a essential part of truly coming to God. Hebrews chapter eleven six: whoever comes to God must believe that He exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not enough to simply believe that God exists. To worship, you must believe that he rewards. And the reward is, is joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. At the right hand of God. We this is where I have to say John Piper has been a huge help to me. Um, he, more than any other writer, really awakened me to realize that if God is to be worshipped in truth, he must be treasured. He must be treasured. 
That, that God really is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's a biblical truth. And so biblical worship is, is seeking after God, expecting to be delighted with God, expecting to find joy in God. Listen to Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you. God my exceeding joy. You, you see, friends, this is why God is not honored by worship as a religious duty. He's not honored because he's not desired. He's, he's not delighted in. He's not treasured. He's just the prop. Worship as duty is not even really seeking to glorify God. It's seeking to pacify him and to glorify ourselves. We're the good people who do these things. In some sense, it's not about God at all. True worship glorifies God when we come seeking the satisfaction of our soul and expecting that we will find it there. That God will be sufficient. That God will be to us our exceeding joy. Well, David has that joy as he worships, even though he's worshiping from his bed. If you notice in verse last part, last part of verse 5 and then 6, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David's awake in the middle of the night. His soul is troubled, most likely, as he's mourning the rebellion of, of Absalom, as he's experiencing the discipline of God, his own folly that brought all of this about. And yet there in the middle of the night, in the middle of his trial, David communes with God and finds it to be deeply joyful. And he praises God. Just think about where David is at. Why would he praise God when such hard, hard things are happening? Well, he'd praise God because God is good and God is faithful and God is glorifying his name. Even though it involves David's pain, God is glorifying his righteousness. He is, he is magnifying himself as God. And that is good to David. It, it, it gives joy to David. He's able to praise God with joyful lips as he tastes the goodness of the Lord in the middle of the night and in the midst of his trial. I wonder if you know what that's like. I think almost every Christian has had that experience of a sleepless night. Uh, maybe something was just on your heart um, some great trial, some, some great loss, some deep sorrow, some great fear. Maybe it was just wrestling with your own sin. And you couldn't possibly sleep, and so you just got up and, and went, to the, went to the couch. Or maybe you just laid awake in bed and you, and you thought on God. But God met you there. I, I hope you've had those experiences. Some of the sweetest times of communion with God are those, are those sleepless times where your soul is troubled, you just take your Bible and you feed on Scripture. It's just so precious when you, uh, in the quiet of the night, when you just open the psalm and, and the words just uh, speak to you exactly what you needed to hear. Well, David has experienced that. God's grace and God's love and God's truth, God's help. 
And so he sings of it, verse 7 and 8, You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. The trouble is still real, but the sheltering presence of his God is more real still. And there in the shadow of God's wings, David clings to the Lord and experiences the preserving, omnipotent hand of his God. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in its purest form. Uh, Because the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints has two parts, that we persevere because God preserves. We persevere because God preserves. We cling to Christ, to all that He is and all that He's done in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our fear. We cling to Jesus Christ, to all that He's promised to us. And God upholds us with his right hand. That's his mighty hand. That's his omnipotent hand. That's why David is confident that he'll be rescued from his enemies in verses 9 through 11. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. The mouth of liars will be stopped. And though David will weep and weep when Absalom is killed. And that weeping is, 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 is deep and true, yet David clings to God. He clings to God. And he is upheld by the hand of God. Friends, let me just ask you as we close, how's your worship life? Your worship life. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just going through the forms in your devotions? In your family worship, in public worship, you're just showing up and, and hoping something happens, maybe? Psalm 63 is meant to redirect us, to point us true north again. To, to call us out of formalism and, and to call us into the reality of, of true worship of God and, and true enjoyment of God. It calls us to, to be sincerely looking, seeking for God. Do that when you, as you're doing your devotions. Be, Lord, just show yourself to me in your word by your spirit. Do that as we come together and worship, as we sing the songs. Be looking and seeking for God as we open the word together. God is speaking through his word. Pray that God gives you ears to hear and eyes to see. Remember what Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that, that I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. It is, it is a travesty when people don't see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When we, don't, when we don't see the hope to which he has called us and the riches that are ours in, in Jesus. And so we need, we need to pray together that God would open the eyes of our heart that we might see these things. We might desire them and delight in them. And my, my prayer is that, is that as a congregation we'll, we'll continue to grow in this. We, don't, we could easily stagnate. We could easily just sort of settle into a comfortable routine. And, and, we, and we do it, and it's, and it's right. We, there's nothing really wrong. But we sense that what's lacking is that hunger for Christ. What's lacking is the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit, where we are being gripped by the reality of God. And lives are being changed because God is revealing Himself, His power, His glory, His goodness, His justice, in truth. We need to pray that that'll happen. God doesn't owe it to us. 
Pray that there would be more expectancy, more desire, more delight in the power and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. More confidence in Christ, more hope, more joy as we sing in the shadow of God's wings. May God grant that we as a church are more and more a Psalm 63 church to the glory of God. Amen. O God, you are our God. By your own electing love, by your own faithfulness and compassion and power, you are our God. And Father, we are ashamed at how lightly that often settles on us. We're ashamed at how eager and zealous we are for the things that are passing away and, and, and how easily we fail, Lord, to seek and long and hunger for you, our God. And Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us again and, and by your mercy, Lord, use this, your word, to recalibrate our hearts so that seeking God and knowing God and experiencing the love of God in Jesus Christ would be what we live for, what we long for, what we pray for. To live apart from God is death, but your steadfast love is better than life. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us then in our devotions and when we gather as families and as we gather together in public worship, that this would be a time where, Lord, we are gripped by the reality of the living God who loved us and gave Jesus Christ to us. Lord, I pray that um, this would be for the transforming of our lives. It would be for the regenerating of those who are still spiritually dead. But most of all, it would be for your glory. That we would worship you because we treasure you. Because we trust in you. Because we long for you. May your name be praised in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing the words of this psalm together. O Lord, my God, most earnestly my heart would seek thy face. Let's stand to sing.
out this week into the life that God has called you to live for his glory. Go with his blessing. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God your Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you, till Christ come again. Amen.